One thing I try to do on this show is to frame conversations in a way that's going to be comprehensible, even generous, to people I disagree with. To have conversations that'll resonate, that'll sound honest to people from multiple different communities, from across the whole political spectrum, and thereby to create some kind of a coalition of reasonable people who can talk to each other regardless of what their prior assumptions about a topic are. And I sometimes think that would be the hardest thing about being a political leader, especially the leader of a democracy in the 21st century, when so many of us get our information from different sources, so many of us are siloed inside our social media feeds and our friendship groups and our news media ecosystems. How do you try to stitch together the fabric of a nation when it comprises so many disparate parts? How do you have conversations with 25 million people at once? Conversations that are respectful but truthful, that are harsh but powerful, that are necessary, but sometimes just a little uncomfortable. Today's guest needs literally no introduction. The 29th Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, he spent the first 50 years of his life as a Rhodes Scholar, a lawyer, merchant banker, venture capitalist. He rose to fame in the 1980s as a high-flying barrister representing billionaires like Kerry Packer. And uh, he won a very high-profile case against the British government to allow the publication of a memoir that was written by a British spy. That's what first lent him a certain level of celebrity and notoriety, both in the UK and in Australia. Then in 2004, he ran for Parliament and he won and became a bit of a fixture of talk shows as a charismatic, wealthy politician and commentator. And it took him less than four years in politics to ascend to the top of his party and become Australia's leader of the opposition. He then (laughs) was deposed a little more than a year later for having supported a sweeping climate change policy proposed by the centre-left Labor government that was led by the Prime Minister Kevin Rudd at the time. And instead of leaving politics after he was stabbed in the back by his right-wing colleagues in his, his own party, he stuck around and six years later, he then stabbed in the back the leader who had stabbed him in the back, Tony Abbott, while Tony was Prime Minister, and that made Malcolm Turnbull the Prime Minister. That was in September of 2015. And To win support for his challenge of the sitting Prime Minister from the right wing of his party and the right wing National Party, uh, which his party was in coalition with, he made certain promises to them that he wouldn't rock the boat by pushing issues like same-sex marriage or climate change, that he wouldn't try to do what he did the last time round as the party leader and get real on carbon emissions, at least not before the next election, he promised. He then called that election for July of 2016. He won it by a single seat, the smallest majority since 1961. It was only two years later, barely three years into his prime ministership, that the right wing of his party stabbed him in the back and turfed him out. Now, Turnbull is 
a specifically fascinating world leader for a number of reasons, not least of which is that his prime ministership straddled the Brexit vote in the UK and Donald Trump's election in the United States, 2015 to 2018, as the other two big Anglophone democracies careened into eruptions of populism, Australia had this highly intellectual, almost milquetoast, multimillionaire lawyer trying to resurrect the values of 19th century small-l liberalism against the forces of populism and global chaos. There are a couple of things that, if you're not Australian, you will want to be aware of in this conversation. One is something called franking credits, which is incredibly boring. I'll read you the literal definition of a franking credit. A dividend paid to shareholders by Australian resident companies are taxed under a system known as imputation. This is where the tax the company pays is imputed or attributed to the shareholders. The tax paid by the company is allocated to shareholders as franking credits attached to the dividends they receive. All you need to know about it for the purposes of this conversation is that at the last election in Australia, the Labor uh, opposition party, which was uh, the favourite, which was favoured to to win, uh, had a sweeping policy to amend the current system of franking credits in such a way that would have disadvantaged elderly Australians who own a lot of shares and are retired. Uh, but that the current system of franking credits and taxation was only introduced 20 years ago. In, and it's quite bizarre. Australia is one of the only countries in the world that has this weird system where if you own shares, you can actually get refunds on tax that you never paid. Anyway, all you need to know is it was a great big schmozzle and something audacious that the la- Labour leader had tried to introduce. The other thing you probably need to know is what the Lodge is. The Lodge is the White House in Australia. So when we talk about the Lodge, that's what we're talking about. If you like this conversation, if you like this show, look, take the time to bother toggling over on your phone to the iTunes store and rating it. Leave us a little comment. Most importantly, shoot a text message to a friend or family member who you think might enjoy it with a link to the show and just ask them if they've ever listened to this show before. If only one in ten of you does that, then pretty soon I will have some incremental but exponential increase in listeners, which I could probably calculate and use to astound you with the power of compounding, but I suspect you'd rather hear me talk to Malcolm Turnbull, so don't make me make you. Just take your phone out of your pocket, text someone to ask if they've heard of this show, and if you're very eager, leave a remark on iTunes so that the algorithm thinks that people are buzzing about it, which they are and should be. Do enjoy the 29th Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. Let's start at the beginning because I'm interested in what your your sort of influences were when you were a, a, a kid. Uh, did you have heroes? Who did you want to be? No, I didn't. I didn't have it. There wasn't a, a figure in a historical or otherwise that I, you know, idolised. Not at all. How did you figure out what you wanted to do when you were eight? Then I was always very interested in history and in politics, so I always had a thought that I would, you know, be a politician uh, or a lawyer or. Uh, you know, I had all sorts of things I wanted to do. Back when I was very small, according to my mother, I announced to some of her rather startled friends that when I grew up, I was going to be the General Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union. Because uh, <laughs> one of my mother's <laughs> interests was she was a Labor historian in her 
uh, use. And, um, and she wrote quite a lot about the history of the AWU, in fact, the foundation of the AWU, and knew some of the leaders at the time. I remember Tom Doherty, she knew, uh, who was a big figure at the time. But she used to write labor history with a professor that was her, you know, her mentor, I suppose, in that area, a man called Bede Nairn. Well, I mean, the, another another leader of New South Wales, former leader of New South Wales, Bob Carr, says that you told him that as a young man you dreamt of being a union boss, and that th- so this obviously persisted beyond the age. Well, of- true. No, I didn't. I, yeah, I don't know that I dreamt. Yes, I dreamt of it. I was. Yes, that was true. Of course, Bob. Um, I don't know whether Bob told you this. It's a story, probably not a story he'd tell, but it's absolutely true how I met Bob. So the scene was: it was the summer of 1972, uh, I was working as a labourer in the city markets, sort of between school and university, and I had been working for a banana merchant. And the uh, banana, I was working very hard. I was, you know, trying to sort of, you know, use this as a workout as well as, you know, because I was fairly sporty, you know, I wanted to be fit. And, you know, so I was basically just lifting boxes of bananas in and out of uh, the gas chambers. Did you know that bananas are gassed? I, I, I do, but do you want to explain to the listeners well, what you're talking about? Uh, I think it's, um, it's, I th- it's, I think it's, is it CO2? I think it is. It's, uh, they're put in chambers where they're gassed. I just can't remember. They're called ripening rooms. Yeah, this is to, to fast ripen them and to yeah, mimic, mimic right. the ripening that's right. Effective. So they come in green to the markets and then the banana merchant, um, you know, depending on demand and so forth, will uh, ripen, you know, ripen them before he sends them off to the you know, fruit shops where they get picked up by all the retailers. I, I've got yeah. to tell you, there is so, so large a distance between where we currently are with the ripening of bananas in a market gas chamber and you as a labourer and the Bob Carr story that you're getting to, that I want to know no, how, no, you, no, want to know no, how it, you make this dismount work. It will connect. Just, just stay <laughs> with me, Josh. Stay with me. Have faith. Uh, so anyway, I ended up uh, having a disagreement about my wages uh, with this my employer and I was fired and he, I believed he owed me some money and he, he didn't. That was annoying. Uh, and I ended up being reduced to working on the watermelons, which I maintain is the hardest physical work you can do. It's now, a large fruit. Because in those days, watermelons were not uh, shipped on great big bins and lifted up and down with forklifts. They came on trucks and you got them on and off the trucks uh, by hand. So you, were lit- you can just imagine passing a watermelon, watermelons all day, like a football. Uh, boy, I tell you, it does wonders for the upper body. So very good. So I'd suggest recommend that as a new workout i'm just writing Um, i'm just writing down just uh withdraw application for banana processor and resubmit to watermelon processor for my next uh gig so fed up with this after work which you know i'd knocked off to from my shift at you know about around midday because i'd started at four o'clock in the morning i um walked up to the trades hall the labor council i should say in uh, sussex street and I walked in there and I was, you know, dressed in my, you know, a pair of shorts and some boots and a shirt and looking sweaty and filthy, no doubt. Uh, and I walked in and I asked to see 
the secretary of the Labor Council. I thought I'd start at the top and John Ducker came out. I told him my story briefly and he was sympathetic, I thought, and he said, look, I know who can, the best person for you to talk to is Bob Carr. And so he took me in to see Bob Carr. And Bob was this very skinny guy with glasses, uh, white shirt, a tie, I remember it was a very thin tie, and he was sitting at a desk with a typewriter. And he had some role at the Labor Council. I wasn't quite sure what it was. But I explained to him my terrible story of injustice. Mm. And Bob said to me, uh, listen to this carefully, and he said, do you know, I've just read the most fascinating book on the politics of Eastern Europe. Would you like to borrow it? <laughs> I said, no, I want you to help me get my money back. Well, anyway, he was of no use there, but we became friends and uh, very good friends, in fact. And I, as uh, I later uh, got him a job at the, uh, at the Bulletin. I'm surprised that he didn't try to sell you something about American Civil War history, which he seems to all yeah. constantly be banging on yeah. about. No, I know that was I know, but it's, uh, it's like the uh, that's the that's the story as I recall it. Um, <laughs> he uh, no, he was the he was good. I mean, Lucy and I uh, actually our first date was with Bob and Helena Carr because oh. they were the they were the when I asked Lucy out, she was a teenager. Um, I was still, she was 19, I guess, 18 or 19. I, um, Bob was the only person vaguely my age, and he's a few years older than me, that uh, I knew who was married. So I thought, mm. what could be safer than that? <laughs> and she uh, might take the hint that I like her. Yeah. If I go out with a married couple. Why are you? Why did you join the Liberal Party then? Why were you a Liberal Prime Minister instead yeah, of a Labor Prime Minister? Well, yes, I mean, that's the... That's the sort of stock question. Um, Maybe you would have been Prime Minister for for 12 years, for Howard-like durations, Mm -hmm. for Hawke-like durations, if you'd been in the Labor Party. I I mean, when I joined the Liberal Party, which is actually not long after meeting Bob, was in 1973 I joined the Liberal Party in the first place when I was at uni, I was, you know, I'm essentially, I'm a smaller Liberal. You know, there's no doubt about that. I mean, that, that is now practically, that's a, uh, an endangered species in the capital L Liberal Party of Australia today, but it wasn't in the 70s. So I, I, I think that sort of small L liberalism was what always appealed to me. Uh, I'm a free enterprise person. But having said that, I've, I've always appreciated and admired the romantic history of the labour movement, particularly the unions and the Shearer's strike and you know, all of those things. And I mean, I get you know, I got all that from Coral when I was a when I was a kid because that was the era that she she wrote about. I've got a wonderful um, letter uh, somewhere, an original letter which uh, was written to her by William Guthrie Spence. You know, who was who was the like? If there's one person who you'd say founded the AWU, it was him. Mm. So um, yeah. Anyway, she was a very old man. When you say that liberal, smaller liberals are, are finding it hard to find a home in the Liberal Party at the moment, where do you see the fate of that going? If you were to put on your prognosticator's hat, who wins well, that I battle? Think, I, I think this is a problem around the world, um, but it's a it's particular. You know, it's particularly it's a problem here, but even worse in the United States. The answer is I'm not sure. You know, the parties of the centre right, and I use that term advisedly, but the traditional right-wing party, 
Liberal Party in Australia versus the centre-left party, the Labor Party. Um, so what's happened is that, and Murdoch has had a huge role in this. I mean, in the United States as here, uh, you've seen this move to a sort of right-wing authoritarian, if not anti-democratic, at certainly undemocratic populism, which you know thrives on culture wars, conspiracy theories, hatred, and division. And you know, I mean, I wrote about this in my book. I mean, I've talked about it a lot. I actually used to talk about it when I was in politics, not too widely when I was PM. But I mean, it was it was it was clear where this trend was going and it was you know abbott tried to abbott certainly channeled it it's it's essentially the politics of negativity and it does work electorally you know because what you do is you get people particularly what had been traditional working class labor voters you motivate them with issues of values identity race resentment against migration or, you know, whatever, you know, there's a whole, they mm. vary from place to place and time to time. But you get them to vote on those issues uh, rather than economic ones. I mean, the classic case was Brexit, right? I mean, Brexit was a, a case where the, where the traditional Labor uh, constituencies, working class constituencies voted for Brexit Essentially, it was a vote against migration, against you know, against foreigners, and regrettably, as as they'll find out, the economic cost of Brexit will be borne most heavily by those communities. I mean, I'm so not people who had the most to lose voted for it. I mean, how else do you explain, you know, working class voters in you know the Midwest of the United States, particularly in Rust Belt states, uh, voting for um, you know Donald Trump? Or, billionaire reality tv show host you know serial bankrupt i mean like, <laughs> i mean let me let me ludicrous, let me ludicrous. give it a crack let me give it a crack how do you how else do you explain it i mean i'm not sure that i concur with the accepted narrative that brexit was about being anti-immigrant and anti-foreigner or that there's something mystifying about people who feel like they've been shat upon by uh, a corrupt elite of people on K Street in Washington and Wall Street in New York who've got the the game stitched up for themselves, and that you know the one way of looking at Brexit and Trump is that these are uh, xenophobes uh, and uh, deplorables, as Hillary Clinton called them. Another way is that we live in a fast changing, disorienting world, and that globalization has left people feeling uprooted and. Uh, and disoriented, and that there's a kind of a, a demographic anxiety that people are expressing about their cultures and their societies changing so quickly, and the and the economies changing so quickly, and traditional you know Rust Belt towns having the the guts dragged out of them by the rapidity of the decline of manufacturing in the United States, and you know, and all of this gets channeled in admittedly sort of confused and not particularly constructive ways, but that, you know, when there's an option on the table to just say enough is enough, let us mm. have some autonomy over our own lives again, instead of constantly swallowing this bullshit that we're being fed, then let's go, let's at least opt for the disruption because we yeah, don't like I get it. I, I, I don't think what I said is at odds with what you've just said. I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's all part of it. And I think the, you know, so what is the, what are the big lessons at an economic level? 
if you like. The problem with the Rust Belt is that there is a Rust Belt. The fact is that when governments have to be absolutely, you know, gimlet-eyed, in just focused relentlessly on ensuring that when you get these economic, industrial changes and transitions, you bring up the new opportunities as the old opportunities wind up. So, you know, this is one of the things I've been, you know, concerned about with the coal industry. Now, I want Australia to stop mining coal. I do. I mm. want everyone to stop. I want people to stop burning coal because if we don't do that, you know, we're going to have an uninhabitable planet, right? But the problem is how do you do that uh, in a way that is just and to the people that are working in those industries today? And the answer is that you've got to be absolutely focused on ensuring that in the areas where there is, for example, a lot of people working in coal mining, such as the Hunter Valley, that you make that a you know, clean energy zone. The, the reckless irresponsibility uh, of the way in which we're approaching coal in Australia, it's beyond belief. In fact, outside of Australia, most people cannot believe how reckless we are and how we've fetishised coal. I mean, what we should be doing, say, in the Hunter, uh, and this is what a responsible government would do, it's obviously a state issue, you know, overwhelmingly, you should be not approving new coal mines or extensions to existing mines unless you're absolutely satisfied that's not going to be the expense of jobs in other mines. In other words, you know, the goal has got to be not to cannibalise your own employment, mm. but at the same time, turn that region into a clean energy centre. Now, some efforts are being undertaken there, but the problem is, you know, I think there's plenty of people in the state government here that have got good intentions like Matt Keane, but ultimately they all knuckle under the whip of uh, Murdoch and the Fossil Fuel Lobby and the Minerals Council and anything that suggests that coal will come to an end or that there should be some limitations to coal mining or open cutting, you know, wonderful agricultural land, any suggestion of that is anti-coal and therefore it has to be condemned. This is one of the problems we face. We've got areas where we should be having a rational a rational policy discussion and rational policy. We're bedeviled by these crazy values issues. You know, look at the look at the way, you know, the nationals, you know, with the reincarnated Barnaby Joyce are yet again wanting the government to build a new coal-fired power station. Like it doesn't there's a reason why one hasn't isn't being built or hasn't been built for years because it doesn't make any economic sense. <laughs> I mean, but, when when you talk about you know, why not? Well, what, what, why don't they advocate that we equip the navy with, you know, uh, sailing ships, you know, uh, uh, you know, frigates of the sort of the hornblower era, and we can sail forth and take on the <laughs> People's Liberation Army Navy with a, you know, a, a you know wind powered navy. I mean, I mean like it's just. <laughs> to be to be fair, nobody is nobody is currently employed in the manufacture of sailboats, but lots of people are employed in in, in the coal industry, which is why they they're yeah. well, they are, oh yeah, they are, they are actually, there are quite a lot of people making boats, but in Australia, but, but yeah, yes, true, no, not, not, to up, no, no, not to go no, up the, against uh, a yeah, a yeah submarine. I, I agree. But, and but the, I'm I'm interested in in who you th in a what you think the solution is, and b who you think is guilty of this kind of rhetoric. Because when you think about Brexit and populists and Trump and the pro coal 
ne'er-do-wells here who are, you know, instead of speaking rationally about things, bedeviling us with values issues. Are you including the Morrison government in that? Oh, sure, totally, absolutely. You know, Scott is, uh, he wants to placate suburbanites by indicating that he's inching towards net zero and, you know, he's constantly being rewarded by some of his appreciative friends in the press gallery, you know, and particularly in News Corp and, and also in Fairfax for that matter. You know, how they regularly praise him for indicating that he's open to such a move, right, which is amazing, that you get praised for not doing something but indicating that you might be open to doing something. Anyway, so that that's to pacify the suburbs. And then in the regional areas, it's a full-on, we love coal, we love mining, you know, the Labor Party want to shut down the coal mines and so forth. Mm. But, I mean, so, if, the, if the critique of the Prime Minister is that he gets credit for seeming right on the issue or, or paying lip service to it without actually substantively moving forward on it, can't the same critique be made of your Prime Ministership with regard to climate change? Uh, well, you can criticise us for not getting enough done, but, I mean, I, the difference was I tried very hard to do it. I got a lot done. I mean, do you really think you'd have Snowy Hydro 2.0 if I hadn't been Prime Minister? No, probably not. I suppose I'm, I'm no, pointing... Probably not, certainly not. Yeah. I mean, that, that <laughs> well, it depends who that. the alternative Prime Minister we're talking about is, but yeah. But yeah, yeah, but yeah. But you see, the, the point is that what I was able to do was putting long-duration storage and pumped hydro not just on the map as an issue, but actually getting in and starting to build something. I mean, that that well, which other big pumped hydro projects are being built in Australia? The answer mm. is there are none, mm. right? One that a private company is going to embark on in Queensland, uh, GenX. But the bottom line is people talk about renewable energy and they talk about making renewables reliable and they talk about this stuff, but ultimately you've got to get in and build it. I mean, the thing about talk versus action, the reason that this is so sort of pressing at the moment is precisely because populism is is so popular, it's right there in its in its name. And then there are, I sort of think that there are politicians of the head and politicians of the, of the gut. You know, there are, there, are, there are people who obey the rules of politics and have a 13-point plan for everything. And then there are other politicians who speak to people's values and their fears and their big themes. And, and, and these people don't need details. They don't need qualifications. They've got stories sure. to tell. You know, and Hillary Clinton was uh, an, a rules politician and she had a plan for everything and Donald Trump was a pro wrestler and I can't remember who wrote it I think it might have been uh, Matt Taibbi in Rolling Stone saying that in the boxing match during the presidential debates between Clinton and Trump Hillary would still be tying on her boxing gloves in perfect form while Trump would come into the ring and smash her over the head with a chair and when you were before you were prime you, minister you sort of admire that Josh don't you I, well I do a little bit I mean I well, do there you go now, okay well that's good I, I do I, I do a now, little bit You've made a confession. Yeah, I don't admire. No, it's a very serious thing. But I, but hang on, let me, let me, let me just part of the problem. Let me just. (laughs) Why am I part of the problem? Okay, I'll tell you why. Because journalists, media like you, who focus on politics as a game, right, and are essentially race cause, what you do is you praise politicians who lie and get away with it. You praise politicians who excite visceral hatreds and get elected on the strength of it. 
Well, that's why it's not a game, you Malcolm. You don't pay enough. You don't pay enough attention to what they actually do. Well, I do. I do. I do pay enough attention. I don't know who the hypothetical journalist you're talking about is, but the, I mean, it's not a game when Trump gets elected. So the reason I, the reason I admire him smashing Hillary over the head with a chair is because he ends up getting elected. If he didn't, then I wouldn't care. I wouldn't admire it. But why would you admire somebody for doing that? Well, admire might be the wrong word, but uh, I mean, let me take. Let, let's rewind to before your prime ministership when you were on Q and A and wearing your leather jacket. I mean, you had you had a bit of that disruptor about you and you courted that image. You were not... Oh, I don't think... I don't think... I'm clever. I don't think I was... Uh, I mean, heaven's sake, I mean, I've always been a sort of bete noire of the, of the right-wing media. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they used to attack me for... They used to suggest I was a sort of labour light when I was the Liberal Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean. but that was dissent. I mean, we, you may be misunderstanding what it is that I say that I'm admiring about someone who doesn't fit a box. It's the it's the sense of them not not simply reciting canned responses to everything and being oh, part yeah, of yeah, a machine. Yeah, but, right? yeah, but you see, but you see the problem, the, the, pro- the only problem is this, is that, you know, ultimately, you, I mean, yes, politics, there is a tactical element in politics you know, if you don't win elections, you can't be in government. If you're not in government, you can't get anything done. But ultimately, though, the important thing is what do you actually get done? You see, you see, the, the, the concern that I have, you know, frankly, the concern I have with Morrison is that he will get elected and re-elected maybe several times, but his government won't do very much. And, and, you know, we've had state governments like this. I mean, Bob Carr's, frankly, was like this. Bob was very good at winning elections, but what else did he do? The part of the problem is that if you see your only objective in politics as winning elections, and I recognise that winning the election is, the, is, is necessary, you know, there's no point being having a great political program that you, and you, you can't persuade people to vote for it. But, but ultimately, you know, what, you've, what we've got to do is ensure that governments deliver, you know, real, real reform policies that work. And they've also got to behave in an honest and accountable way. And I mean, you know, we've got some huge issues of you know, lack of accountability at the moment. My concern, Josh, is that, you know, in the sort of media political ecosystem that we, we operate in, increasingly political skills, i.e. your ability to persuade people to vote for you, uh, is all that matters to the commentariat. And there is very little attention paid to the actual substance of what is being done. I'm 100% with you, and I did not go blow by blow over all of Trump's, uh, uh, you know, uh, misdeeds while he was president for precisely that reason. In fact, it's one reason why I moved back from New York to Australia, to avoid having to cover him, because I couldn't see a way to do it fruitfully. Um, but the I do think there's there's a case to be answered for the the utility of playing the political game as well, if only because winning elections does lead to you remaining in power. I mean... Oh, yeah. No, no, the, I, I the, agree. Well, there's no, there's no point 
you know, there's nothing to be gained from just eternally squabbling over the spoils of opposition. And in fact, I mean, this is this is something that you know better than anybody because you had you faced the question when you became prime minister of what are you going to do about the fact that there's a rump of your party that's much more conservative than you are and has always been suspicious towards your smaller liberal ideas, and you mm. did. You made a pact with them and you held off on the things that you cared about deeply, like climate change and marriage equality, in order to, in the hopes that that, that would be a sustainable well, relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, it's sort of, that, that's kind that, They rolled the, you anyway. That's the narrative, but I mean, I, that, that's, that's peddled, but it, it's not quite right. I mean, what I, you know, so I became Prime Minister in September 2015. An election was due within you know, six months, right? The Nationals wanted me, you know, insisted that I agree to, one, sticking to the commitment that the Abbott government had made to having a plebiscite on marriage equality, which was not something I agreed with, but I took very much took the view once you've made that public commitment, you can't walk away from it. And the second one was not to change our climate policy uh, you know, to stick with our existing climate policy and, to, you know, right through to the election. I, I wouldn't have planned to change either, to be honest, uh, in the circumstances. I mean, you know, if I'd thought I could have got marriage equality through the parliament on a conscious vote, I would have tried to do it. Really? Didn't, honestly, you the, yeah. didn't you have those yeah, votes? Yeah, you would have gotten yeah, all yeah, of, yeah, but, pretty much all of Labor and the Greens. The, the view at the time, and this is a later time, this is around the time of when we had the plebiscite, the my view, and I think Warren Inch, you know, who was very committed on this issue, shared mm. this view. Our view was that we would not get it through the Senate on a conscience vote. You'd probably get it through the House, but in the Senate, there are so many because the senators are they're, they're pre-selected by their party branches, and and they tend to be much more doctrinaire than people in the House because the general election doesn't really determine whether they get into the Senate. It's just whether they get on the party ticket. Right. Um, they, our view was that we would not get a majority uh, because there would be too many of the Liberal and National Senators. I mean, you could have. Vote for it. So, you could so, have tried. Is, that, you could have tried. Look, I mean, if, if, if the front page of every newspaper had been the new Prime Minister defies <laughs> the right flank of his own party and, and betrays the commitment that he made to the National Party by calling a conscience vote and then it passes overwhelmingly in the House and then it's on the on the desk of the Senate, you would imagine, look, who knows what would have happened. It, it oh, I, don't happened. Think, I, think that, I think you're, I think you're um, yeah, well, who knows? But, I mean, you would, you'd be essentially blowing up the government over what is essentially a procedural point. I mean, the, the, the thing, the story about marriage equality, frankly, is that there are many people in the left who bitterly resent the fact that I legalised it. Right, that I made it happen, and they because they wanted it to be a great achievement of the Labor Party, even though Labor had been in office for six years and you know done nothing about it. But but they wanted it to be an achievement of the Labor Party, and they did everything possible to prevent my government from delivering it. But I was able to do so. Wait, the Labor Party did everything they could to prevent your government from passing marriage equality. They would have voted for it on a conscience vote, wouldn't they? Uh, well, yes, most of them would have, yeah, but they but they did everything they could to stop there being the, 
the plebiscite. Uh, and I mean, you, you know, one of the many ironies of this whole debate was that I had never, ever said that I thought marriage equality should be the subject of a plebiscite until, in fact, I was quite opposed to the idea. But Shorten had actually gone to the Australian Christian lobby and told them that he believed there should be a plebiscite. So this was the, you know, and this just shows you the, you know, the craziness of politics, I guess. I mean, I was ended up defending a a process that, uh, in effect, had, you know, I inherited yeah. and all opposed a process that he'd actually advocated because he didn't want, because he, he I think, knew, had no doubt that, that a plebiscite would be successful. Um, and I was very confident that it would be. I mean, the postal vote, and look, I hasten to that. I recognise it was a it was a painful time for many people. Um, but the you know it was it what it did nonetheless result in a very big yes vote. Yeah, look, I, I thought it was fine, and I thought, and I I think it was actually worked out better than a conventional attendance ballot would have. I mean, none of us would have thought of doing it. Well, it was it was timed out perfectly because I moved back from the states where I had mm. married my partner, uh, it, like in the month that it, that it mm. passed. So, yeah, so like, we were literally, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't blame you at all for the for that procedural way of doing things. I think the no. the interesting thing, the interesting thing to me is how do you make politics sort of exciting and values-driven and take the best bits of the populist and mm. package it into a meaningful set of policies that you can get across the line and and part of do part of that is standing up to bullies and that you mentioned your book one of the one of the most interesting parts of the book for me was your relationship with Donald Trump he wasn't elected you know he wasn't the president when you became prime minister and Brexit hadn't happened yet when you became... Had Brexit happened? No, it was, it was no, the year Brexit after. Brexit happened in 2016. So you sort of came, became Prime Minister in a, in a world that was still sort of held together with the fabric of the old order, in a right. way. And when Donald Trump got elected, you write in the book about how there was a scramble even to contact him. He had no transition team. You had to, you had to call Greg Norman, the, the, the golfer, to get yeah, Donald Trump's Donald number. Yeah, I thought he was going to... Well, in fact, I know. He didn't think he was going to win. And... You you had the opportunity to basically stand up to him because he was pissed off at the fact that uh, that the Obama administration had done this deal about refugees, which we won't go into the details of. But there's a passage in your book about you saying that essentially bullies have to be stood up to because, sure. and that that you had advisors who were saying, oh, maybe we can throw throw him a bone by giving him some concessions on a on the yeah. free trade deal. And you were saying, no, don't give him anything because if you give him something, he's not going to respect you. You got to mm. essentially not give give him anything and stand up to him, and. Then I wonder, just looping back to the the sort of criticism that you've faced of not getting into power and rolling the nationals, uh, is there an analogy to be drawn there that, like, well, you stood no, up to it's, Trump it's, it's but didn't stand up I mean, to the, Barnaby Josh, Joyce? The reality, Josh, the reality is the nationals are part of the government. I mean, you can't roll the I mean, you may be able to persuade the nationals to go along with something that they don't. Um, like yeah, I should I shouldn't say wrong. Um, I would say I would no, say no, dare dare fire. them to, dare them to fire you as prime minister well, by well, announcing an emissions trading them, scheme. You're on daring day. them to 
bring the government down. And I mean, I think, you know, one of the lessons of Australian, Australian political history is that people in the, the political culture is one where people are not afraid of blowing governments up. And, you know, I mean, you look at that coup against me in 2018, I mean, that was complete and utter madness. Uh, and if there'd been an election held, you know, the following week, you know, the Labor Party would have probably, you know, won two-thirds mm. of the seats, you know, like it was just... It was just and this, yeah. this comes back to your critique earlier of the media in the sense that the, the, one of the things that annoys me the most about my colleagues and in my industry is leadership speculation talk, because if ever there was a self-fulfilling prophecy, it's leadership speculation questions. Like the yeah, moment yeah. the question, the moment the question becomes a constant question of like, uh, do you have the confidence of your party as leader? Mm. There's blood mm. in the water. And then what can you possibly do except end up falling on your sword or getting stabbed in the back? Because if the yeah. question doesn't stop, then the issue doesn't stop and everyone's just then says, well, we have to make the issue go away, which means knifing the leader. Did you yeah. know when you started hearing the rumours, when you started smelling it in the press, did you know that the writing was on the wall or were you just disbelieving? I I didn't believe Dutton was as crazy as that. You know, I didn't believe he was, He, I mean, I didn't think he had the numbers and he didn't have the numbers, but, you know, I thought he was being, in effect, jogged along, but it was... It then became obvious that it was it was real, you know, because crazy can be real. Mm. People can be really crazy. That was, you know, how I mean. Obviously, this is all been, you know, it's the, the the best account of it is in my book. I might say, <laughs> naturally, I did actually. I I uh, know what you know. Obviously, I had insights that no one else did. But the it, it can be very tough, and 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 I think you know, I mean, Scott. He knows that Joyce on climate is channeling a sort of an ecosystem, a sort of a call a media political ecosystem, the components of which are the fossil fuel lobby, obviously, the right wing media, particularly Murdoch, Sky News, you know, the tabloids and so forth, 2GB, and um, the right wing of the Liberal Party itself, as well as, well as the National Party. And this is the you know, this is the problem, that uh, that's a reality. They're very highly motivated and they're very influential in terms of people's pre-selections, particularly in Queensland. You know, this has all been part of the process that has seen the Liberal Party move further to the right. I mean, one of my moderate Liberal friends in the Liberal Party in New South Wales had said, you know, reminded me the other day, he said, he said, you know, when I go to Liberal Party branches, uh, one of the most common or, you know, frequent observations is what a pity it is that Craig Kelly has left the Liberal Party and wouldn't it be good if he could, would come back? And so, you know, that's that's where a lot of the branches are and that is that is part of the problem. So, Should Barnaby Joyce be where he is? Well, I mean, the answer is he where he is because he's the leader of the National Party, right? Should they have brought him back? No, I don't think, it, I don't think that was a particularly... Uh, sensible, you know, progressive, worthwhile move. But that party room has been so bitterly divided, you know, that's, there's only 21 or so of them, but they, the animosities, the uh, hatreds are just ferocious. I mean, they make, in a way, they're even more intense than uh, they were in the Liberal Party, you know, when you had Abbott floating around, you know. Mm. So. 
when the government, I mean, looking at the government's popularity, the big things that Scott Morrison has been riding high on since the pandemic began are his handling of the, the pandemic, both economically and then also obviously in terms of uh, stopping the the uh, stopping it from becoming a, a local epidemic here in Australia. Yet we look at the vaccine rollout and we look at other countries starting to open up and we look at the border and we look at where we rank on vaccines. What happened? Well, I think the, you know, it's a, it's, it's a sort of a, a plague of two parts, right? The last year, you know, the heavy lifting in term, at the governmental level was done by the states and territories. I mean, Scott can bask in the credit for that, but the truth is that the, all of the, you know, the border closures, the quarantining, uh, even quarantine was managed by the states. So the states were the ones that actually Managed, yes, but yeah, but put in place were, put in place by the the I mean you know at the instigation of the federal government who decided to close the border. Closures were put in place for the federal government. No, sorry, no, no, no. The quarantine hotels were at the instigation of a plan from the federal government to close the borders and ensure that anybody coming in was going to be quarantined. Yeah, which which the states insisted on. But the, yeah. at the bottom line is that the that the public health, you know, at that level is essentially managed by the states. And that's so I'm not I'm not criticizing the feds for this, but I'm just saying that it was um, largely done by the states. Now the Fed federal government had one huge responsibility, and that was to get the vaccination thing done and get the vaccines, procure the vaccines. They didn't have to handle the vaccination. And in fact, that was a political decision they took to manage the vaccination process because vaccines, vaccinations are handled by states and territory public, you know, health departments. And obviously there are millions and millions of vaccines, you know, uh, done every year, you know, mm. flu vaccines and, of course, all the vaccines that kids get. Um, so anyway, uh, the fact is that we, or the feds, did not buy enough vaccines. But you can't get around that, Josh. I mean, it's the, they, they didn't... They didn't. They got hardly any Pfizer. They didn't get any Moderna. They didn't get any Johnson and Johnson. They, you know, they got AstraZeneca, and no doubt because they felt they could make it here as well, and that's all fine and dandy. But essentially, we put all of our eggs in one basket, and that has put us in the position where we are absolutely vulnerable, as we can see at the moment, to variants. Because you know, in the US, with all of its complexity, and you work there you know what i'm talking about it's a big complex difficult to administer country the the yanks have managed to vaccinate uh, with at least one shot right now 68 percent of people over 18 and in many states and territories many states and, and territories uh the figures are you know upwards into the 70s you know 75 percent some places so so the Americans have more or less achieved in many parts of the country herd immunity. Uh, Brits have, have have done much the same. You know, we are we're how long away are we from that? You know, a, a year maybe. <sighs> I don't know. Like it's well, just, it, yeah, it, the, it is the single biggest failure of public administration that I've witnessed because it wasn't. You know, often you get good ideas and good policies that are poorly executed. Often, you know, things just go wrong. Often you choose option A, doesn't work, but options B and C mightn't have worked either. But this was pretty simple. This was get a, as many vaccines as you can 
and make sure you've got diverse supplies because obviously, you know, as we all know, in, in investing and everywhere else, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm. So, so that's so it's a big fail. I mean, you can't, you know, the, the you've only got to compare our percentage. I think we're a bit over seven percent f- uh, fully vaccinated now. It's, uh, but we're just miles we're miles behind and months behind. And in all of those months, we're vulnerable because it may be that by you know keeping still thousands of Australians locked out of their own country keeping millions of Australians, all of us, locked into this country, it may be that we can, you know, the quarantine lock-up will continue to work. But, gee, it's a very high price we're paying. I mean, imagine if we had the same level of vaccination as the Brits did or, you know, New York and California did or Malta did or... You know, well, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have been locked. I mean, Sydney wouldn't have been locked down. Is the simple no, answer exactly. because I mean, yeah. look, if, if, where we should have been by now, and this is what we were told: we we're going to be at the front of the queue. We should have been in the position where you could say, everybody who wants a vaccine has has had one, right? And and let's say that gets you to seventy, but let's say that gets you to the sort of levels they're seeing in the US and and uh, other, some other developed countries, at that point you say, look, okay, for those people who don't want to be vaccinated, you know, you've made your decision and if you get COVID, well, you know, we'll be very sympathetic, but ultimately that's a consequence of the decision you took, mm. right? And, but the problem we've got at the moment is that we can't say you can't get on a plane unless you're vaccinated. We can't say, you know, you can't go to the theatre unless you're vaccinated and these are all the sorts of things we should be doing you know we should have vaccine passports absolutely uh but we can't do that because people can't get vaccinated i mean not everyone can anyway all the other anglophone countries they stitched up their deals with pfizer in Mm -hmm. july of 2020 at august well it was the Mm -hmm. 5th of august that canada signed off on its and Mm -hmm. we know that the australian government met with pfizer in july and then came back and asked for doses in November? Well, it's just, it's just a complete failure. Well, okay, so with Israel, who probably did the biggest deal with single deal with Pfizer, or not the biggest, but, you know... Per capita. Country. Yeah. But, but Bibi Netanyahu spent hours and hours and hours. He's the Prime Minister. Whatever you think of him, he spent hours and hours and hours on the phone to the head of Pfizer, to the head of Moderna, to all of the vaccine manufacturers, he made it his mission to get as many vaccines as quickly as he could. And and you know he, if you spoke to him, he would he would say, look, that he said he'd say I, I knew Israel's a small country, densely settled. There was no way, you know, the quarantining, social distancing thing was going to be very effective. And so he 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 knew that vaccination was the was the way out. And, but he made it his mission to do that. And I, look, I, it, it was a fail, Josh. I mean, you know, the, I was reading an article in the Sydney Morning Herald today which was just full of one excuse after another. I mean, that's, that's, that's political journalism nowadays, making excuses for the government. Mm. The bottom line is, was it possible to get uh, a plentiful supply of Pfizer, Moderna, um, as well as AstraZeneca? The answer is yes, because other countries did. And it was, cer- it was certainly possible because to we try. Because prepared to pay for it or we didn't have the energy or the focus 
who knows? But we're paying the price for that now. So that's why I say this was an unforced error. It's the biggest failure of public administration that I can recall. Uh, let's close with a rapid fire round. I asked you some rapid fire questions when I spoke with you on on ABC Sydney. Uh, so let's uh, let's do it do it again. There's uh, I like to 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 get your thoughts about whether something is overrated or underrated. So I'm just going to say some things. Yeah. Okay. And tell me if they're overrated or underrated. Okay. Uh, uh, Robert Menzies. Uh, I think underrated. Lamingtons. <laughs> overrated. Political biographies. Um, I would say underrated. <laughs> the author of one. <laughs> uh, going to the moon, the moon landing. Oh no, I think that's 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 uh, that can't be overrated. That's definitely underrated. That's what about what about phenomenal. going going to Mars in the future? No, uh, underrated. I think that's I, I'd love that love to go to Mars. Yeah. Elon Musk. Probably overrated. That's a that's that's a fine call. He's a pretty amazing innovator. Uh, flying first class. Oh, definitely overrated. <laughs> when was and the last I, time I, you flew I'll economy class? I'll explain why because yeah. it, because the I mean basically the object in you know air travel in the days when we used to be able to do that uh, I've always thought is and I've done a lot of it naturally is uh, <laughs> is to sleep. So you know the minute they introduced. Uh, you know, business class seats that could lay flat. That was yes, that, right. It. So we're comparing yeah, first. The only to, thing, as long as I'm to flat, business, I yeah, okay, okay. I don't, I'm not interested. In we're not the, in Jetstar seat 64B. No, 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 no. no, no, no the job, in fact, the um, yeah, the object is my object is oh, as long as I'm flat, I can sleep. Is the prime ministerial jet nice? Is it nicer than a first class on, uh, on Qantas well, A380? Well, the new one is fabulous. The new, which I have not flown on, I, I commissioned or, you know, I approved the final design of it. Or there you go, and they kicked you out before you even got on. Yeah, I know. I know. It sucks. It's a, it is a, it's an A330 sort of uh, plane, which has been, has got a, which is actually an air, air in-air refueler, and it's oh. got a, it's got a VIP, what they call a VIP fit-out, so it's got a, you know, Nice bedroom so. for the prime minister and all that stuff. Maybe the, the plane that I used to fly around internationally on was one of the two, which I've still got the two Boeing business jets, which are very nice. They're seven three sevens, and they haven't. They, yeah, they look. They, no, they're lovely. They're, they're sort of old and and noisier than a modern <laughs> Airbus, but they. I I, um, I I like sort of things that are you know a bit old and quirky. Yeah. Yeah, I was a bit old and quirky too. I once, <laughs> that's right. I once gave a, I once moderated an event at the Ronald Reagan Library in California uh, for the Gaudet Australia events um, for Tourism Australia, and and uh, it was a black tie gala, and they've got the, uh, they've got Air Force One, they've got Ronald Reagan, the Air Force One that was retired, I guess, during I the Reagan administration, and it's yeah. hanging there in the presidential library, and you can walk through it. And you can see what Air Force One was like before the current mm. incarnation of the seven four seven. And it, gee, yeah, I almost, I would almost rather fly around on that than on something new and fancy. The big difference, I would say, between say the Boeing business jets and the new plane, apart from the fact the new plane is is you know is bigger and you know newer and stuff, is that they're much quieter. I mean, yeah, the, 
Yeah. The newer newer aircraft tend to be a lot quieter. There's a passage, Malcolm, in in Obama's uh, in the first part of Obama's presidential memoir, where he talks about coming out of the the Oval Office one evening early in his presidency, and walking along that is it the portico, I guess, the, the, that walkway between the Oval Office and the residency, and yeah. pausing in the evening and looking up at the the same trees and sky that Lincoln looked at and at all these presidents before him looked at. And it's, it was the first time that I read something that really made me feel what it must feel like to be a president and how sort of surreal that must be. Did you ever have any moments like that? Um, not quite. I sl- at the lodge, I used to, I slept in the, in the bedroom that John Curtin used to sleep in. And which I assume he died in. Um, mm. So I was sort of always wondering whether I might encounter his ghost. <laughs> but the, um, there are two. There are two sort of main bedrooms in the lodge. One on the um, uh, western side, and one on the um, on the eastern side of the house. And the one on the western side, unfortunately. It's, you can't sleep in that room and with and open a window. So it's essentially, and I, I always like to have some fresh air. So that room, which is called the Menzies room, I did not sleep in other than a couple of times. And then I, when I moved over to the other side of the house, which is not quite as noisy and you can open a window and get some fresh air. So that was a... Um, that was a statement about ventilation, not a statement about <laughs> politics. Uh, will Josh Frydenberg make a good Prime Minister? I think he would, actually, yes. I think he would. I didn't use the conditional. I used the future tense, but uh, I was just assuming that he will be. <laughs> well, I mean, he's he's absolutely, that's his mission. And he's, um, and I look up, yeah, I think he's a, he's a very human, humane, you know, intelligent, energetic person. He's got, you know, his wife, Amy, who I'm sure you've met, mm, is you know, yeah. a wonderful woman and, you know, very very forbearing, as all political spouses have to be. Because right? <laughs> so there's not much time for anything other than politics if you're a politician. But I'd say, you know, he's, a, he, he's good. But, but I think the, uh, you know, how, how that all plays out, who knows? I mean, I, I always thought Morrison was most likely to succeed me. Uh, if I'd fallen under a bus, uh, as it were. And I thought that, you know, Josh is probably the next cab off the rank, but it depends what happens. I mean, I think if Shorten had won the last election, Josh would have definitely become opposition leader. Mm. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But, you know, that's, I mean, that is a, getting from being opposition leader to being prime minister is very hard. So we will see. And I, I wouldn't see Scott resigning in office to be honest, I think no. Scott will cease to be Prime Minister when he lo- if and when he loses an election. Yes, or when the party turns on him, perhaps, as it is sometimes wont to do. Yeah. Oh, well, very, very wont. Well, I mean, this is one of the problems, of course, is that the, you know, that we all deplore instability in leadership. But, you know, a lot of people in Labor quite reasonably say, well, you know, the Labor Party got flayed for their changes of leadership. But if you look at the... Um, Coalition had has had three PMs in three terms, and uh, is still in office. 
mind you, I mean, the difference was when I became PM, you know, after Abbott, we had an enormous lift in approval. I mean, mm. we were heading to obliteration with Tony, you know, and there was this massive relief rally. Um, it was sort of the reverse when I got rolled. I mean, my deposition was not popular with the country, with the public at all. But ultimately, Morrison was able to, you know, have the election at the latest possible date, pretty much. And he, um, and you know, Shorten managed to make himself unelectable. So that's why, you know, I said in my book, you know, that 2019 was an election that uh, the Labor Party lost, uh, an election the Labor Party lost and the coalition didn't deserve to win. And I think that's, I think most... Yep. Fair-minded observers would agree with that. I was at a fancy soiree full of uh, left-leaning media people who I won't mention, uh, uh, and uh, I was the only person who was saying that that I thought that Scott Morrison would win the election. Everyone else was convinced that uh, that Bill Shorten was gonna was gonna win. But I, I agree with the assessment that it was uh, that it was Bill Shorten's election that that was lost. Is Anthony Albanese going to be prime minister? I don't know. I think he's. I'm not confident. That he could would win. I, I I think he's. I think Morrison is more likely to win the election, but it's not a very inspiring choice. And <laughs> I think um, you know both sides will in effect be playing with having you know campaigns with pretty uh, low expectations. You know, be sort of low. You know, the kind of be com- competition to see who can be the smallest smaller target. Um, I mean that. The, the, the thing that troubles me is that the opposition, and I just say this not as a partisan, you know, just being trying to be objective. Yeah. What troubles me is that the opposition does not seem to be able to hold the government to account. You know, I don't, and I, that, I think that's partly because of the air cover that the Murdoch media give the government, which is, you know, considerable. I mean, they have a sort of relationship now with Morrison, you know, almost the way Fox had with Trump. And the uh, so things like the sports rorts or these, you know, this car park grant scandal, you know, this these are things that would have, if they'd occurred in my time in government or I think in Abbott's or our predecessors, it would have been, would have shaken the government to its foundations. But that doesn't seem to matter anymore. You know, there doesn't seem to be accountability. Does not seem to exist anymore, and I, I find that very, very, very troubling. You know, and of course the problem is if the message of that that politicians get is that they can get away with anything, then you know, obviously they will do more. Harkening back to our earlier conversation about politics and winning elections, if you were the political advisor to Anthony Albanese, how would you package everything that you just said into a one-line attack on the government? God, I should ask Tony Abbott that. <laughs> he's the, he's a, was it, the, was it Dutton or one of those right-wing nut jobs said that, you know, oh, Malcolm can't say anything in less than 3,000 words. You know, yeah. so, so, <laughs> uh, look, I, I think the, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think they've got plenty of smart people, but they, I mean, you know, there were so many weird things about uh, Shorten. I mean, he, I've written about this in my book, and I don't, I've got no animosity towards him at all, at none. But he, he, 
he could not express himself with conviction. Yep. Because I, you know, I like I nobody, you know, watched him as closely as I did because you know I would give a speech and he would reply, and very often he had a really good speech. Someone had written a fantastic speech for him, or he'd written it. I don't know. And his delivery was so inauthentic yeah. that I, I sometimes wanted to jump up and say, "Look, Bill, give me the speech and I'll read it for you." You know, <laughs> because it's just I could have done a much better job. Uh, or just it a, wing it or something. Yeah, no, no I, he, I, I completely I think, agree. So th- this is my theory, Josh. My theory is that you get a lot of people in politics, and I think Julia Gillard was a bit like this too, who are they're in politics their whole life. They are terribly self-conscious. They essentially create their own persona and everything, their persona is kind of calculated. Um, And therefore, it inevitably comes across as inauthentic. And that's now, obviously, if you are authentically a grating, alienating, unpleasant person, then you may have to moderate your authenticity. It didn't hurt Donald Trump the first time around. I think Shorten, Shorten is a better person than than the person that it came across. That's my. I mean, it's it's. And, I mean, of... and Julia definitely is like that. I mean, I remember um, who was it? It might have been John Key. It was a foreign leader. He said to me, you know, he said, I can't understand the difference between Gillard in a conversation, you know, like a, a meeting where she is warm, uh, smart, you know, engaging, constructive, or you know, all of the things mm. what you want your lock it to be but then he said when she gets up on a platform with a microphone suddenly it's this stiff awkward mm. you know fake's not the right word but you know but you know very self-conscious well f- i mean fake sort of is the right word not that she was fake but that there's a semblance of fake there's there's yeah. i think what this is all a very long roundabout way of uh of, of saying that it comes down to trust i think i mean i think that was yeah. the def- the shortened deficit yeah and you that- see that's and you see therein lies the problem you know, Trump was a like in many ways, well, most ways, very appalling. But he was authentic. He was authentically appalling. Yeah. And you know, he wasn't a, you know, greedy, selfish, arrogant, narcissistic billionaire pretending to be, you know, Mother Teresa. Yeah, that's right. So, so I think the but so I think you know authenticity is critically important. But I'll tell you another story that that about Labor which fascinates me. I won't say who it was because it's embarrassing, but. It was just, it was about six weeks before the 2019 election. I bumped into one of the leading Labor figures and, and I said, oh, you know, hi, how are you going? And he said, oh, we're going great. We're going to win. And I said, oh, okay, well, fair enough. Good luck. And uh, I said, oh, just by the way, I said, how's that um, franking credits thing going? I said, I, I'm really amazed you haven't wound that back. That's a real, was a really bad idea. And he said, we will not lose one vote over franking credits. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, we will not lose one vote. I said, look, believe me, I said, you'll lose tons of votes. You may not lose enough to lose the election, but it is, it's poison, absolute poison. And he then proceeded to give me a lecture about why the franking credit, you know, this is the cash refund of the franking credits, mm was a bad policy that shouldn't have been introduced in 2001. And I said, look, I agree with you. I said, I, actually, I think it was it was a bad idea. But I said, you've got to remember the Labor Party supported it. It was there. Actually, I think it might have been their idea first. 
So I said, yes, but it went hot in 2001. I said, how can you, I said, you know, I, I said, I've, you know, I've spoken to so many retirees and, you know, not these are not wealthy people who are just horrified by this. I said, you've got to, you know, this is a, this is a, having a, will have a real impact on retirees' incomes. Well, just, you know, didn't mm. persuade them. Now, what I thought was interesting was, I mean, here am I, the plutocrat dweller in my <laughs> harborside mansion, you know, supposedly out of touch with the aspirations and needs of the, you know, the battlers. And here's this guy, a Labor Party stalwart, just completely and utterly out of touch, just as was ultimately demonstrated. Mm. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I thought that, that was a. Uh... It is that is interesting because what it also shows is that they that this person didn't understand that ultimately what people were going to vote on was less about the details of the the policy and more about whether or not they wanted to entrust Bill Shorten with a complicated policy that they didn't understand. Well, yeah, because but they also they also didn't want to have money taken out of their pocket. I mean, you know, sure, I, but I mean, I, I mean, how smart do you have to be to work out that in. You know, if you give somebody, however, as a grant or, you know, a tax break or whatever, and if you give someone a, a, a dollar, they may or may not acknowledge it, be grateful for it, recognise it. They may just as likely say it should have been $2. You take 10 cents of that away from them and they want to kill you. Maybe, so, maybe, so, but I reckon. Well, I promise you, Josh. But, well, well. Put it this way: Do you re- do you reckon? Do you reckon that there's no way that a Bob Hawke or a Bill Clinton couldn't have gotten that over the line? Uh, oh, I, I, I mean, you didn't have to be Bob Hawke or Bill Clinton. I mean, any sensible person. Yeah, the, the way to get it over the line was obviously with tax changes. You get what is called the distributional analysis and the ATO. We'll do that for you. I, mean, I think most of this stuff is public. And you basically work out who is benefiting from this tax break and, you know, in what amounts. And so if once you conclude that 80% of the people that are affected by it are only getting cash credits and tracking credits of 10 grand or less, uh, you say, right, you know, it won't apply to payments of 10,000 or less or 15,000 or less. There's tons of ways you can do that. Now, the problem, of course, is that that probably isn't going to give you the revenue gain that you want. But also, you that they, what, what you, you know, just said is not is it isn't it doesn't make for a sexy ad. I mean, I love you, Malcolm, but that but you've just reverted back to the thirteen point plan style of politics, right? And I don't think that would have helped shorten because at the end of the day, yeah, he could have he could have thrown it, sexy, but Josh, all of the amendments that he wanted to, and yeah. if people didn't trust him, he wouldn't have gotten it across the line. Yeah, but you cannot make a sexy ad that makes a self-funded retiree feel good about taking money out of his or her pocket. Here's what I saw. Here's what I saw. And I've said this on on the podcast before. A few days before the election, Bob Hawke died. And Bill Shorten came on the telly. And I was presenting the weekend breakfast show in 2019 on ABC TV. So I spent a lot of time watching, you know, these, <laughs> I was going to say droning, boring, you know, press conferences by politicians as they were, as we took them live before coming back to the studio. And this is the lion of the Labor Party who's just been lost, right? Yeah, this is the person who was the shining, 
light on the hill, if you want, that Bill yeah. Shorten was was aspiring to be and who was his mentor, his own personal yeah. mentor. And he gets up there and he goes, I'm not going to cancel my trip to Perth because, oh, look, I could, I could do all of the things that make people think that I'm uh, mourning for Bob Hawke, but I'm not going to pander that way. I'm going to continue to do what's right for Australia. And I looked at him and I thought, if you can't make me feel something, about the loss of the most important man in your political life. How is my aunt going to trust that the 10 cents in the dollar that you're taking yeah. out of her pocket is yeah. the right policy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I think that's that's a fair point. And I that's mean, what was missing. But that, but that gets back to that issue of trust. There's a real, just getting back to the fundamental problem yeah. I, in politics at the moment is this, this sort of anti-science, anti-reality <laughs> you know, populism mm. that is, you know, taking over so much of the right, particularly uh, political spectrum, you know, cultural wars, denial of biology, saying COVID isn't serious and masks don't work and vaccines are bad. And, you know, like, here's an interesting thing. Uh, in America at the moment, of the 22 states that have the highest levels of vaccination, all of them voted for Biden. The wow. 22 states with the lowest amounts of vaccination, all of them voted for Trump. Wow. Okay. So the, the people that listen to Fox News and other right-wing media are getting this diet of, you know, anti-vax propaganda, all that. Sort I, of saw on, I saw on social media that they're oh, running out no. of... Yeah. They're running out of ventilators in Missouri. They've got a COVID, yeah. you know, and these are these are all people who have had access to the vaccine, obviously, for yeah. quite some well, time. And you look at, you know, um, like the northeast corner, they've all got massive uh, levels of, uh, of vaccination. Yeah. Uh, so, although I must say I do know a lot of hippy-dippy lefty inner-city Instagram mums who, don't, who are anti-vax. As well, so this is this is a problem on the left too. Do you just speaking of the culture wars? Since you raise it, are you worried about our intolerance towards towards sort of speech? I mean, where do you fall on? The, you said small l liberal at the beginning of this conversation, and, and oh, no, I'm a, I'm a I'm a free speech person. I absolutely reject cancel culture, and I reject intolerance, regardless of whether it comes from the left or the right. I'm a great believer that everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own facts. So that's, you know, that's where I often part company with, uh, you know, the, with the people on the right, because it's obviously denialism about global warming has just been, you know, the worst aspect of all of this. Yeah. I mean, that's catastrophic. But I mean, uh, in terms of being a smaller liberal, the, the, the upsurge of... I suppose, censoriousness on the left or, mm. you know, the haste with which people will jump to the worst possible interpretation of their opponent's arguments. Oh, yeah. yeah well, left, well, but, see, but, this is, but this is where, so this is the sort of social media thing. I mean, you know, one Is that what it is? One of the best things you can do for your sanity is not, not read it. You've got to be very careful with, uh, particularly if you're in public life with social media, because, it, you know, if you take, it, it's a very important means of communication. But if you uh, start taking too much of it to heart, you'll become, you'll mm. become you know, you become very sad. No, that's true. But I mean, I I do worry somewhat that the mores of social media are are bleeding out into the rest of the media as well. And there are all kinds of things that we could talk about here that would uh, potentially get me fired, you know, from my employer for yeah. simply having a conversation about because there yeah, are an just, increasing number of tripwires. 
Yeah, exactly. Thank you, mate. Terrific to talk to you. Thank you very much, Josh. I hope to see you in the flesh soon.